This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Hey, good morning, Trinity. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie Garcia. And uh, if you're a visitor, and there are a few, I, we're so glad that you're here. So at Trinity, we've been in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Acts. And Acts really just chronicles the lives of the early Christians in a post-resurrection world. And so you know, the question we ought to ask is, why study first century Roman and Christian history? I mean, because that's what we're doing when we study the book of Acts. Why do Christians read these ancient historical accounts with so much expectation, believing that in them we're, we're going to find meaning, right, for our present and modern lives? Well, the first answer to that question is because we actually believe that behind the human author, and the author here is Luke, he was uh, Paul's traveling companion, that behind the, the, the human author is the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, right, he's the guy behind the guy. And it is why there is this sort of divine and authoritative character. You know, the Bible reads different, doesn't it? Now, maybe you believe that. Maybe you don't believe that, that the Holy Spirit is uh, divinely inspiring it. But here's the thing. There is a kind of profound nuance and wisdom that emerges from these ancient historical accounts that actually makes sense of our lives. It's actually interpreting, it's teaching us how to be human because these stories are going to give us categories for how we ought to understand the world as it exists. Let me, let me just share with you how this has happened and I've reflected in my own life. So I was born in the 70s and uh, so I grew up right in a, in a well past post-Vietnam world, the Cold War, uh, uh, the Cold War was finishing up, the Berlin Wall, of course, falls in the 80s, and so the 80s for me, as I experienced it, was pretty peaceful compared to earlier in the century. But then, in 1991, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and then all of a sudden the U.S. is at war, right, the first Gulf War. Now, at that time in 91, I didn't know exactly what that meant. For me, it was just like I get to watch a war on TV. It was like, it was, it was kind of a category changing for me. I didn't understand all of the details, but we began to ask the question, who are the bad guys? Who are the bad guys? And it was like these dark-skinned people from the Arabian Peninsula. And Latinos can tell what color caramel, what color brown people are, right? And I couldn't quite decipher it all, but the bad guys started having a face to me. Now listen, I'm not claiming that I was a particularly worldly person. I was a Texas kid. Life was simple. It's pretty black and white. But the Gulf War, probably in some unhelpful ways, uh, shaped me. And then, of course, a decade later, September 11th happens, and then again, radical Islam, that religion, although it's a very small percentage of the population, didn't change any of those fears that had been inculcated in me over the years, right? And uh, the truth is, I never had a really meaningful friendship with a person of the Islamic faith or Arabic roots, right? That changed when I moved to Puerto Rico, believe it or not. 
So two doors down from us is this wonderful Muslim family. Jose, who is Palestinian, Manal, she is Jordanian. Uh, They have three kids. They all go to Arabic school. Manal wears the traditional hijab, and her son, her only son, is named Muhammad, you know? And so maybe maybe these two families, us two families, met each other and found each other because we're like the only non-Puerto Ricans in our neighborhood. But nevertheless, one day, Muhammad, their son, goes missing, and uh, Manal's really upset. She doesn't know what to do, and things are only getting worse. So she, she comes, and she starts banging on our door. And she is completely undone. I mean, uncontrollably, uncontrollably crying. She is wailing. I mean, publicly wailing like you would expect like at a funeral. It is gut-wrenching. And so we, you know... We, we, we take to the streets with her, all right? At this, we're, we're trying to find her son. Um, her humanity is, is just being, it's right there in front of us. And as she's like really, really melting in a real heart-wrenching way, she would find comfort in my wife's arms. It would be my wife that would hold her as she just cried uncontrollably. We found Muhammad shortly after that, but something changed that day for us. See, Manal isn't just this caramel-skinned, hijab-wearing Muslim. She is a mother who loves her son. And our families bonded that day, and that, they became, hands down, our favorite neighbors. We loved them so much. As we were pa- packing boxes this week, she comes to our house with tears in her eyes. So sad for us to uh, be moving this next season of our life. And, and she brings gifts to all of our children. It's incredibly sweet. Now, of course, I want them to know Jesus. I want them to love Jesus. But even so, this Muslim family is a gift to our family. And, and through them, they actually helped me to see the world through a more complex grid than just good guys and bad guys, right? More complex grid. Well, guess what? What was happening to me, that's what the Bible does for all of us. It, 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 the Bible's been doing that for millennia. It's, it's helping us to see things in a more complex way. See, humankind, humanity, has this profound need to know for certain who the good guys are and for certain who the bad guys are. But doing that's hard and nuanced and complex, isn't it? And so what we're going to find in Acts 25, we're about to study this, is this text helps us to resist simplistic ideas about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. While at the same time, it's going to help us live for Jesus in a very pluralistic world. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at two case studies. We're going to evaluate the, re- the religious leaders and the secular leaders and do a case study on both. And that's how we're going to study Acts 25. All right, with that introduction, would you stand with me? Guys, this is a long text. Please keep it open. We're going to be referencing it the whole sermon. But give your attention to this very best part. This is Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up from Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. 
So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the uh, the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid out Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And and when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused has met his accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that the man be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather... They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he, was, whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when, Paul had, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. Grass withers, the flower fades, but these words will endure forever. May he bless it for us. Amen. You may be seated. All right, right right at the outset here, we have to kind of get our brains around Roman and Jewish uh, political processes, right? This is all kind of complex. None of the Bible is going to make sense until we kind of decipher and unlock this. So I want to teach you a little bit about this context so that you can really, so the Bible becomes more uh, intelligible to you. So let me try to un- unpack this very quickly for you. That strip of land that was given to Israel by God, where the 12 tribes settled, at the time of Jesus and thereafter, it was firmly under the control of the Roman Empire. At the time of our text, Acts 25, Nero was the emperor in Rome. So Nero takes the title of Caesar. Now, usually the Caesars were like these successful generals, but their headquarters are not in Jerusalem. It's in Italy, right? So since the Roman Empire is so vast, after it conquered a land, the armies didn't necessarily depose the king. 
often they just turned it into a vassal kingdom. In other words, it's as if Caesar is saying, listen, you belong to me. You are under my authority. You must pay taxes to me. But, but I find it helpful that you continue to govern your own people. You're, but you're now like a puppet state, a vassal kingdom. And Caesar will rule through your rule, right? That's how it works. Now, at, the t- at that time in Israel, the Herodian dynasty was who was functionally in charge. They were the, the puppet state now. They're the vassal kingdom. You learn about a few of the Her- Her- people in the Herodian dynasty in the New Testament. Herod the Great, he's the dude that was in charge of the king when Jesus was born. Then you have Herod Antipas dies. Now we have here in our text... Herod Agrippa II, all right? They're all from the same dynasty. These guys were kings in the region who ruled on behalf of Rome, all right? So Rome finds them useful because the Herodians, uh, the Herodian dynasty had a little bit of Jewish blood, but they worked really well with the Jewish tribunal system, which is called the Sanhedrin. And this partnership kept the Jews quiet by and large. All right, by and large. Because here's the thing, is Rome does not like uprisings. What they like is control. And so their job is to keep the regions pacified. Now, while the Herodian dynasty, of which Agrippa's a part of, oversaw the whole region, Rome also appoints these, these guys called procurators. All right. So a procurator is like a, ro- a local governor. They handled all the civic and judicial affairs in their province. And so that whole region is broken into a handful of provinces or, or municipalities. Maybe you could describe it like that. And the procurator is the first line of defense in dealing with keeping the peace. All right. Are y'all following me? All right. Well, let's remember Paul now in his context. So the apostle Paul is a Jew. But he's also a Roman citizen, and that comes with certain rights and privileges. So Paul has just finished, all right, everyone, the third missionary journey. Uh, he is going, he's going through the entire Roman Empire. Everywhere he goes, he's sharing his faith. He's, uh, there's tons of converts. He's planting all kinds of churches. And at the very end of the third missionary journey, the Holy Spirit speaks to Paul and says, Paul, you have got to go back to Jerusalem, and it's not going to go well for you. So Paul goes to Jerusalem faithfully, preaches that Jesus is the Messiah of God, and he, but more than that, he says, and although you think he's dead, he's not. He's alive. He resurrected, and he rules. That very simple message is what awakens the intense anger of the religious people. So much so that one day in the, in the temple, right, the holy place of the Jews, this mob forms, there's this riot, and Paul absolutely would have been strung up by his own people, except that Rome does not like mob justice, right? They like control. So the soldiers come, uh, the, the mob stops, and the soldiers arrest Paul they, and protect them, right? But they ask, so what's this guy's crime anyway? What are y'all so upset about? And the religious leaders were super incoherent. And because Rome couldn't discern his crime, they just take Paul into custody. And then they ship him off to Caesarea. All right, Caesarea is a city named after who? 
Caesar. But it's not in Jerusalem. It's on the water. It's on the Met. See, that's where all the, the Roman political elite and leaders lived, right? They, they liked that oceanfront property, right? Right on the Med. Who doesn't like that? That's like, like Condado. It's nice real estate. So they would prefer that because Jerusalem is like this big, bustling, working Jewish city. So they like to stay out of town. So last week, we learned about Paul's very first hearing, right? Antonius Felix. He is a Roman procurator. And so Felix, if you guys will remember, it was like, you know, I want to keep the Jews happy, right? Keeping the peace is a big deal for Rome. But Paul is innocent. And so he's like, I'm going to deal with Paul by not dealing with Paul, right? So they lock him up in jail for two years. All right, middle schoolers, this is like being in jail for seventh and eighth grade the whole time, all right? So there he is, and, and Paul's in jail until another Roman procurator is appointed. And this guy is called Porcius Festus. And so our text in chapter 25 picks up with Festus. Now he's like, we have this guy, he's a Roman citizen who's been in jail for two years. He's kind of a lightning rod for the Jews, but we need to deal with him. But here's the thing that I want you and I to see. We are looking at Roman political judicial processes in the first century. But all of that is a guise for the agenda of the Jewish religious leaders, and their guise is murder. Like, they are murderous. See, look there in verse 2 and 3. We learned that who are the accusers? It's the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews. They laid out their case. It was a weak case. And they asked for, they're not asking for justice. What are they asking for? Look, they're asking for a favor. Why? Verse 3, because they were planning an ambush to kill him. Right? That's what they wanted. Verse 15 repeats it again. The priests and the elders lay out a terrible case. They're not a- Listen, they're not asking for truth to prevail. They're asking for a predetermined sentence of condemnation against them. Verse 15. You see that? All right. It's a lot of explaining, but I want you guys to just think about this with me for a second. Men who have pledged to follow God with their whole hearts, want to instigate violence against an innocent man. I mean, and these guys are are zealous. Like two chapters earlier in chapter 23, verse 14, they say that they have strictly bound, they say, we have bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have Paul killed. Like, what? That's pretty serious. That's not like skipping breakfast, right? They're using this spiritual tool, a religious rite like fasting, right, to ensure, like, to ensure that they murder an innocent man. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I think of fasting as something that you do to become more like God, to commune with him. And here they are pledging to God to kill an innocent man. Now listen, I'm pointing all of this out because the author, Luke, is highlighting their behavior like a case study of religious people. These spiritual people, look at me, you guys. These spiritual people do not think themselves murderous. 
These spiritual people think themselves holy and obedient. They see themselves as the good guys who are protecting the faith against the plague of their culture. And here's what I want to ask. Is are these guys just lunatics? Are they just raving mad? Are they manifestations of unadulterated evil? I really don't think so. My fear is they look a lot like me and you. They had families. They prayed over their food. They went to Bible study. They cared about the spiritual landscape of their country and their people. They had young children who they taught stories about Yahweh. They placed their little toddlers on their shoulders like a loving father would. They prayed over their children. And here's the point and the application. If in our search to know with certainty the good guys from the bad guys, if in our search to do that we oversimplify things, if we look at these religious leaders and say they're the bad guys without humanizing them, then you and I will never see ourselves as one of them, and we will never learn from this case study. And that would be a tragedy, because a deep and even sincere ambition to serve God can lead religious leaders and religious people like us towards really sinful behaviors and even violence in some cases. And so you have to be suspicious with yourself enough to say, what even, what even began as a sincere desire to honor God, to, to protect our country from moral decay, to advance the truth in a pluralistic world, even, even though it began that way, there is a proclivity even in our hearts, Trinity, to speak profoundly sinfully, to shame people, to put people in their place, to hurt people in the name of God. In the name of God. But what if? What if the Spirit began to show you that you're playing by all the same rules as the bad guys? Would that motivate you to change? What if your heart on social media was equally as dark as the people you're speaking against? What if you began to see yourself that way? Well, those people who make no sense on, on social media, who write the weird stuff, they're just like you and me, you know. They want a better world for their children. They want peace. See, the Jewish religious leaders, they wanted that too. They wanted a better world for their children. They wanted peace. But even an earnest ambition to glorify God can turn dark. And that's how come, instead of becoming simplistic about labeling the good guys, the good religious guys, and the bad religious guys, we must use this as an occasion to rethink our own lives and see how we not only believe God's word, Jesus' words, but we mimic our lives and pattern them after him, right? Large groups of well-intentioned people can be wrong for decades. Truth will prevail, though, 
The gospel's true. It will prevail. It will. But there's an occasion right now for us to turn our life and pattern it after Christ. Let it correct our thinking, but not just our brains. Let it correct our character, our character. All right? All right. So let's take a pivot. So first we looked at the case study of the religious people. Let's do a case study about the secular people. It's interesting that in our text, when Porcius Festus, who's the Roman procurator, is giving a briefing to King Agrippa, who is the Herodian vassal king for, for Caesar, the way he sums up the tension between Paul and the Jewish leaders is this. Look there in verse 18. It says, When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. In other words, he's saying, because Paul is religious, I just assumed he was crazy, right? Verse 19, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. In other words, you guys, this is like a secular guy who's looking at two religious people debating, and it's just confirming to him that religious belief only causes problems, right? All the world's problems are because of religion. If there's no religion, we wouldn't have these problems, right? Have you ever heard that? Anyone ever heard that? That is actually an increasing anthem in the world that we live in. People are starting to believe that. And let me, let me illustrate how this is happening, uh, how it's happening in our time. Perhaps you guys have um, heard about the Equality Act, uh, if you haven't, it's starting to get a little bit more uh, publicity. But basically, it's just this body of legislation that's being assembled in Congress. Uh, it's presumably to try to be passed. And what it would do is it would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the list of classes that are protected in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Okay? So it's adding that. And so let me just say... That piece of legislation would be incredibly problematic for Christians. And, and not just because we disagree with the behavior. It's actually more complex. So hear me out on this a little bit and stay with me. And listen to my heart real quick. Let me, let me, just, let me give you my heart. People who are same-sex attracted or suffer from gender dysphoria or transgender, these people are made in God's image. We should be compassionate we should respect them and honor them and extend God's tender care to them with the same zeal that we would extend it to anyone. And I mean that because I, for one, am embarrassed at times where Christians have been so unhelpful and not extended gospel love to that particular community. It's, I'm embarrassed at some of the things that we have done in the name of God, all right? Now, having said that, listen to me closely, this piece of legislation would, where it passed, would shape the moral imagination of an entire generation that would ultimately create secular hostility and aggression towards Christians. And let me make this case. While Christians are called to sacrificially love all those who are made in God's image, we believe what God says about our bodies and what he says about our sexual lives matter, right? Like our biology, it matters. 
And it's not, it's not that we're judgmental about others. It's not that we think we're better than other people. But we do believe that God's design is a means of grace and human flourishing. And not just for Christians, but for everyone, all of humanity. And so the Bible is really clear. It teaches that God made man, male and female, that we are indelibly tied to our biological bodies and our physical bodies, and that our sexual lives can be a source of blessing and fruitfulness. But when they are used outside the bounds of God's design and law, it can cause and has caused untold devastation and deep brokenness. So sex is kind of like, um, it's, like it's, awesome. it's like a fire, right? And it's awesome when it's in the fireplace, right? It, it gives warmth and comfort and blessing. But if you take that fire out of the fireplace, put it in the house, it will burn the whole thing down, right? So from a place of love and blessing, Christians have firmly maintained the biblical vision of sexuality. Although we recognize we're outsiders, it is incredibly unpopular in our culture. I get it. No one agrees with us, right? Fine. I got it. We're extremely unpopular for believing what I'm telling you right now. Presently, we believe what we believe because the Bible teaches it, and the culture disagrees with us. That's fine. That's the real world. Christians and non-Christians can disagree on things. We actually don't expect secular people to just agree with us, right? It's fine. It's whatever. We're big kids. But here's the thing. With the Equality Act, something further is happening. It is intrinsically equating a biblical vision of sexuality that we agree with to a morally repugnant behavior like racism against African Americans and blacks. They're saying it's the same thing, right? And so if that analogy, if, if, if they're saying it's the same thing, if that analogy wins the day in the sort of national and moral imagination of our society, and it would win the day if the act passes, and maybe that's the world we're going to be living in, then when that happens... Something else is happening at the same time. Now, Christians and non-Christians don't just disagree like we have before about biblical sexual ethics. Now, Christians represent something that is morally repugnant, like racism. You see what I'm saying? And therefore, disagreement isn't disagreement anymore. It's going to turn into shaming, stigmatization, and painful and insidious opposition and it's going to create a kind of social violence that didn't need to be there. We could just disagree, but now there's going to be a kind of social violence. And what is the source of our moral repugnance according to secular people? What is it? Why do we believe what we believe? It's our faith. It's our religion, isn't it? This, this is nothing new. In 2004, Sam Harris author, neuroscience, PhD dude from, uh, uh, from UCLA, turned sage, public sage, I guess. He wrote this book called The End of Faith, and he emphasizes the danger of religious belief in his book. And I quote Sam Harris, there seems to be a problem with some of our most cherished beliefs about the world. They are leading us inexorably to kill one another. A glance at history or at the pages of any newspaper reveals that ideas which divide one group of human beings from another only to unite them in slaughter generally have their roots in religion. It seems that if our species ever eradicates itself through war, 
It will not be because it was written in the stars, but because it was written in our books. It is what we do with words like God, paradise, and sin in the present that will determine our future. Now, what, why am I bringing this up? We're studying Acts 25. Why am I bringing all this up? It is important for us to resist the temptation to simplistically believe that religious people are bad, right? And we must also resist the temptation that simplistically that just secular ideas will solve it all. It'll just fix it. The state will fix it. And, and good and justice will be embraced. See, Festus is looking at Paul, a Jew, and Jewish leaders. He, he, says, he says, hey, you know what? It's their internal debate. It's their religion that's the problem. Their faith is the problem. But he actually has no sense that his own worldview is equally problematic. Now listen, we 100% condemn religious violence. We, we share some of Sam Harris's concerns. We, of course, would condemn that, right? But the premise that if we could just get rid of religion, people will love each other, that is incredibly naive, and it's just not true. It's not. People do all kinds of awful stuff to one another, all kinds of awful stuff with no religious motive. And in fact, that's the case most of the time. Ken Lay, CEO of Enron, cooked the books to make himself rich. He didn't do that in the name of God. Hundreds of thousands of people were devastated when Enron fell. I'm just mentioning that because I'm a Houston kid. What was the motive? God? Prestige, power, money. Those are different gods, aren't they? Dare what I say, dare I say that what we find, that that, that, that use of secular power and worldview, that's what we find with the procurators, with Festus, agents of the so-called neutral state, right? See, when our passage picks up, Paul has been imprisoned for two years, seventh and eighth grade, right, guys? <laughs> right? right? Two years. And Felix, the first procurator, he was cleared. There's no case against them. So why is Paul still in jail? Why? I'll tell you why. He's waiting on a bribe, guys. He could boost his resume by pacifying the Jews and get a little, a little aside, get rich on the side. Two years later, when Festus picks up the case, it happens again. Verse 7. All the evidence is poured over again, and it says, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. You would think that a secular person with his virtue would release an innocent man, the one who's been detained for two years, but he doesn't. Why? Because truth and justice are not what moves him. And in fact, in verse 9, we see Festus wanting to give in to this Jewish uh, lobby, this interest group. He says to Paul, look there, verse 9, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on those charges before me? Uh, Paul, Paul totally, strongly opposes that option. Why? Because he knows what, he knows what Festus is trying to do. It's a ruse. He knows what he, Festus is not concerned with truth or justice. Festus knows that if Paul is given to the Jewish tribunal, the Sanhedrin, then Paul will most certainly be executed. This is a win-win situation for Festus 
get a little bit of money, pacify the Jews, get rid of Paul. The opposition is politically convenient. But, his, but Paul's blood would be on Festus's hand, to be sure. He knows what he's doing. And so here's what I want to ask for this second case study. Is a secular framework the solution for having a good, violent, free, just society? No. Because power and money and prestige can lead secular movements into acts of injustice. And listen, guys, this is not just about Paul getting his day in court. Don't think for a moment what happens here is just stays there. There's this trajectory of the secular state in Rome that would have Christians violently thrown to lions in coliseums for sport. That's coming decades later. That's where this thing's going. So here is the point in the application. If in our search to know with certainty the good guys from the bad guys, if in that search we oversimplify things and we look at these secular leaders and say they're the good guys, that that's going to fix things, you and I will be swept up into a current that will only produce more injustice. More injustice. Y'all got to be clear on this. See, listen, you guys. Secular people and religious people do bad things. It's a tie. (laughs) The common denominator for evil in this world is not religion. The common denominator is the human heart. And that includes you and me. Wherever there are people, there is this intrinsic glory, but also a breathtaking moral depravity, both. And so we need help, and we need help Bad. And I mean bad. So let me just finish with my final thought. Paul knew what he was getting into when he decided to go back to Jerusalem. He knew that he would be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately killed. So why did he do it? Why did he do it? Well, Festus tells us what motivated Paul. Verse 19, speaking about the dispute between Paul and the chief priests. The chief priests, you guys, they believe that Jesus is a, is a carpenter. Uh, turned itinerant rabbi, born in Bethlehem, and then he died. But Paul says Jesus is those, those things, but he is the promised one of God. And though innocent, they put him on a cross and they killed him. And though he died, he resurrected on the third day and he is alive. See, Paul believes Jesus is alive. Paul saw him with his own two eyes. The resurrected Jesus is not a part of Paul's faith. He saw him. He touched him. Paul was a murderous religious person before himself. But then he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ, his living Savior. And that that changed him completely. So much that he was willing to die for him. Now listen, tons of people will die for what they believe to be true, but nobody dies for what they know for certain is a lie. Paul's life is heading towards death by the Roman government. His crime? He's a Christian who believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead. There is no hoax. He saw him. And he just wanted to talk about it. He wanted to talk about it with everyone. Gentiles, Jews, I want you to know this Jesus who resurrected from the dead. You've got to know him. It's true. 
And his testimony never once wavered. Guys, we live in a land where, a lot, where religion has done a lot of damage. And we live in a land where secular government has been used to promote injustice. You and I are not the first generation of people who've been called to proclaim the resurrected Christ in a hostile world. But we can, no matter however history turns, that's what we're called to do. And we begin by self-reflection. And God will, God will be with us. He will. His gospel will prevail. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a strange story, history, Roman history, Jewish history in the first century, Acts 25. And yet we know that you are calling us to rethink ourselves and you are equipping us to live successfully in a pluralistic world. To be self-critical, but also to not be seduced. Help us to do all those things by your spirit. That Jesus Christ would be exalted. Oh Lord, we pray for his glory and his glory alone. Oh, help Trinity do a little bit of that even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.